for the Lord in a prayer for uh, his illuminating spirit. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we come before you to acknowledge that it is only by your Spirit's ability to penetrate the hardness of our hearts that we can come to know you and to understand you. And we come before you because you've promised where your word is opened and proclaimed, there your Spirit will be poured out also. And so we pray, Heavenly God and Father, speak to us in such a way that your Spirit dwells richly in all of our lives, equipping and enabling us to glorify your name. And Lord, we pray especially for the one who might be with us resisting, refusing, rebelling against your word. Lord, you are sufficient even for that hard heart to bring it, to see the glory of your majesty in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to read a couple of passages from God's Word uh, this afternoon. The first is from Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we're going to read the verses 24 through 27, which is essentially day 6. We're going to omit that aspect of God's blessing, man, God's dominion mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, the giving of all the fruit and all of the food of the earth, and even the final concluding word, which says that God saw everything and behold, it was very good, and that ended the sixth day. We're just going to read what was and who was created, especially with respect to humanity, on the sixth day. So verse 24 of Genesis 1 reads as follows, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then he said, or God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have, or let them have, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're going to turn to John 1. So the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, which is a bit of a connection to Genesis 1. They start in similar ways. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, we read God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We're going to read from verse 29 to verse 34, which is John's recounting of the baptism of of Jesus Christ, rather, the Son of God. So at verse 29, page 1053, the next day he saw, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's for the reading of God's holy word. In both of those passages, though maybe not immediately evident, the doctrine or the teaching of the Trinity is revealed. And that's what we're going to confess together in Lord's Day 8 on page 209 in our Forms and Prayers books, 210, or 210, 209, 210. Here we do get to recite these two questions, or these two answers rather. Keeping in mind in Lord's Day 7 what we saw, that only those that are engrafted into Christ are saved. They are grafted by faith, a faith that lays hold of God's Word and of His promises, promises revealed in that Word and summarized in the articles of our Christian faith. So we get to Lord's Day 8, and the question comes, how are these articles, so that's the articles of the Apostles' Creed, how are these articles divided? into three parts, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And then question answer 25, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we now start in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism a series of sermons on the Apostles' Creed. In Lord's Days 9 and 10, we will deal with God the Father and our creation. And then from Lord's Day 11 uh, through to Lord's Day 20, uh, Lord's Day uh, 20 deals with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but from Lord's Day 11 to Lord's Day 19, we will consider the person and the work of the Son of God, and then in Lord's Day 21, 20, uh, 1, 20, 21, and 22, we will consider the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin a study on the person and work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is, of course, to us very familiar. That is, we are used to speaking of God in these ways as our Father, as the Son, and uh, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's good always to reflect on who this God is and how he has revealed himself to us and what it means that he is our God. But this is a very unique confession. This is a very distinctive testimony on the part of the church. Indeed, it is unlike any found anywhere else in the world. Not that there aren't religions that have multiple gods. There certainly are. Polytheistic religions exist in abundance. Even as monotheistic, the great religions of our day are all monotheistic, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. There are religions that believe only in one God. There are 
uh, comparables, you might say, in that respect. But that's not really what it is that we confess, is it, when we confess faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not like the polytheists in one respect. We're not like the monotheists in another respect. We are in many respects something altogether unique and different. We are monotheistic, but we believe there are three persons to the Trinity. And to understand something of what this means for us, we turn our attention now to Lord's Day 8 and the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism on this point, beginning with that very opening question that deals with the articles of the Apostles' Creed when it asks how are these articles divided and it reminds us that what we confess, the summary of our faith, the summary of all that we believe can be found in the Apostles' Creed and those articles are divided into three distinct points. Indeed, our uh, new or newish, it's uh, approximately five years old now, but uh, translation of the Apostles' Creed makes that intentionally clear. Uh, the original Apostles' Creed had only one I believe in it. I believe in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the way it was laid out. We've made it intentionally clear that we believe in God the Father. We say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe in the Holy Spirit so that it is clear that what we believe in is the three persons of the Trinity and we are told that these articles are divided by the catechism into those parts God the Father in our creation God the Son in our deliverance and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification already we ought to note as we consider what this means for us that the God who is being described for us in the words of the Apostles' Creed, the God that we confess faith in each Lord's Day when we use the words of the Apostles' Creed, is a God who is, well, different than any other God you find in this world. Because this is a God who is, we might say, inherently, uniquely, very significantly a God of relationship. I mean, Father, God the Father, Father is a relational word. It's a word that describes a bond, a connection, a relationship between two or more people. A father is someone who has children. Indeed, even as the word son, the son is also, isn't it, a relational word. A son has a parent. A son is someone in a family. A son, a son, rather, is someone who is bound together with others. Indeed, even the word spirit. Maybe not initially obvious to us. Certainly not when it used to be the Holy Ghost. That wasn't a great way to describe the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But even a spirit, when we speak of someone's spirit or we speak of someone having a significant amount of spirit, we we speak in terms of describing a person. We speak in terms of, of their relationship with others, how they interact with, how they communicate to, how they reveal themselves to others, which is only to say again that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all persons presented to us in the Word of God where we find these words for each. We don't call God the Father. He calls Himself that. We don't call God the Son. He calls Himself that. And so too with the Holy Spirit. 
We find that in these words that we are given to refer to God, we are given relationship words, relational words. And indeed, that's not surprising, given that the three-in-one God, of whom we make confession each Lord's Day, is the most intimate the most intimate of all relationships that have ever been. For as we read in the Athanasian Creed, and indeed this is why we chose to read it this afternoon, we see that there is such a profound intimacy between these persons that they form the foundation or the source of all other relationships. As the Athanasian Creed reminds us, it's not three gods we confess faith in, Not three gods who found each other or even produced each other. There isn't a greater one. There isn't a lesser one. There isn't a bigger and a smaller. There is three eternal, almighty persons of the one God. Which is very hard to grasp. I understand. We'll get there in a minute. But let alone just the intimacy then of this three-in-one God, this one-in-three God, just Think about what that means for the dynamic of their relationship. Just think of what it means for the Father to love them, the Son, and the Son, the Father, and together to love the Holy Spirit who with the Son loves the Father and with the Father loves the Son. Just think of how one, how close, how absolutely united with no dividing it it is, or our God is, in His three-in-one identity. And notice again then how that makes our faith so very different than all other faiths. Different than any other deity, any other monotheistic deity like Islam or Judaism. They don't have a three-in-one God, they have only one. Or, if you will, the polytheistic religions, Hinduism, Greeks, that sort of thing, who have many individual gods. In In the one of those religions, the monotheistic religions, if you study Judaism, if you study Islam, you discover that there is no real love. There is no real intimacy. There is no real relationship between the God and His people, between the Creator and His creation, or even within His creation. And there is, in the second, in the polytheistic religions, Constant anger, division, war, shifting allegiances and uncertainty as to who's on the top of the mountain today. Which is to say there's no unity, there's no purpose, there's no stability. Which is again just to note a distinguishing aspect of our faith. That as Christians, indeed, as those who know this three-in-one God, we are uniquely situated to be able to know such things as love, such things as intimacy of unity and peace. We, of all men, alone can truly speak about love. Because we talk about how God is love. A concept that makes no sense apart from His being three in one. We talk about having a relationship with God, which makes no sense if He is not a relational God. We pray to the Lord because we know that He will hear us because He knows that He communes with us. Indeed, we commune with God in our sacraments. 
in our worship, in our devotions, we have this conviction, this sense that God walks with us, listens to us, loves us. Indeed, our entire spirituality is wrapped up. Our entire religion is shaped and founded upon the truth of God's being triune. Or to put it another way, that this teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity is not one doctrinal truths among many. Rather, it is the doctrinal truth that we confess. It is the foundational aspect of our faith that if you were to take this from what we believe, then everything else would fall away. And to be sure, other religions will imitate or ape these aspects of the Christian religion. They will try to to speak in terms of relationship. They will try and speak in terms of love. But there is no basis for that in their foundational truths. Allah has no reason to love anyone. In fact, Muslims don't talk about Allah loving anybody because that is such a foreign concept in their theology. Why would it be? Why would one individual all by himself, God, who is eternally by himself, ever think in terms of love? You can understand why our God is the God of love. He has loved for all of eternity His Son and His Spirit, His Father and His Spirit, His Father and His Son. Our God is love. You can understand that when you understand something of the doctrine of the Trinity. But you can't understand that if you don't. Oh, you want it. That's what people want. People want love. They want relationship. They want understanding. They want meaning. They just don't want it in relationship with God. That is the world in which we live. A world that says, I'll take, Lord. I'll take all the blessings you have. I just don't want them in you. Well, that's not possible, you see. For our God is triune. And He has created us to be in fellowship with Him. Indeed, the the creed uh, teaches us this as well. For not only does it tell us something about who God is, but it describes how how we are relating, how how He is relating to us, how we are in relationship with each other. For it says, not only is it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in whom we believe, but it is God the Father and our creation, and God the Son and our deliverance. And God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Notice that. It's our. Our creation. Our deliverance. Our sanctification. Not only is God in relationship with Himself, but He has also from the first been in relationship with His people. That's why we read from Genesis 1. Because there we hear not only God saying things like, let us make man in our own image, Again, a, a, a plural, us, that requires understanding, that requires we make sense of. But this us who made man in his own image made him an image bearer. For that we also read. He created them male and female, created in his own image, in the image of God he created them. The image bearer of God designates a relationship between God and His people that is unique and special and wonderful. A relationship that is reflected, not incidentally, also in marriage where the two are one. A blessing that the Lord bestowed upon His creatures that they might experience and enjoy the same intimacy, the same bond 
in their, in their life and in their world. The Lord, from the beginning, entered into a relationship with us, a relationship defined by love. He made us so beautifully and so wonderfully. He knit us together in our mother's wombs. But more than that, He sent His Son to die for us. He knew us. He knew the depths of our sin. He knew just how far from Him, how far into the pits of hell we had descended. We didn't know, but He knew. He knew our name and He counted our sins and He gave us His Son that we might be saved, that we might have our name announced by Him as redeemed. Didn't we just see that this morning in Everly's baptism? God the Father's, or God the Son's rather, deliverance of us is of most intimate sort. It is a very particular in deliverance. He knows our name and He died for us, even as the Holy Spirit is so very relational. Here we hardly even need to spend time thinking about this, don't we? Because of course the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit makes His home within us. He softens our heart, illuminates our minds, He equips and enables. This is what the Spirit of Christ does for us. And so we discover, don't we, that in each one of these descriptors, God the Father and our creation and our deliverance and our sanctification, that God is not content to sit up in heaven and just let the world go by. He doesn't just go off and do His thing and leave the world to do its own thing like some watchmaker winding a watch and leaving it on the counter and forgetting about it. No, our God is a God who enters into relationship with His people and loves them with a perfect love. Again, here is a, a, another distinguishing mark of our Christian faith. This is, this is something that helps us understand and make sense of the world in which we live. Even though we might be tempted to disconnect it from the person and work of our triune God, nonetheless, the truth is here we can understand humanity and society and history so very clearly. Consider that because man is an image bearer of his God, he is by nature incurably social. We need relationships with each other. We think that at a minimum, it's enough to be with each other. We do need, of course, relationships with God, but we don't always recognize that. We do recognize, we have increasingly recognized, didn't COVID dis- to teach us this? In all of those events of isolation, what did we learn? But that when people are kept from each other, their mental health is, is uh, diminished, their ability to bear up under the challenges of life is diminished. People even uh, come to the end of their lives. How many uh, in, so, in long-term care homes were suddenly passing away because there was no interaction, no stimulation, no care connection, no relationship. Why is that? Why is society so incurably social? And why does our society itself acknowledge, continue to acknowledge, in a broken way, understandably, that marriage is so unique? 
People still want to get married. People still want to enter into relationships. People are still hurt when their spouse violates that relationship by being unfaithful. Even those who do not know the Lord, do not confess Christ as Lord, still see a unique relationship between a a man and a woman and despise any kind of brokenness in that relationship. Why is that? Where does that come from? If marriage is just a political thing, as we're told by those thinkers of our day. If marriage is just an emotional thing, a sexual thing, then how come all of these people get so brokenhearted when their marriages end? Indeed, this is why the expulsion of man from the Garden of Eden was such a terrible thing. Because indeed we were broken in our relationship with God and the brokenness in our relationship with God brought upon us so much brokenness in our lives. Tension and judgment, shame and guilt, grief and sorrow. All because we rejected our relationship with God because we did not maintain that relationship we had been given with God because we said we could go it on our own, that we could be autonomous and independent. And when we break covenant, when we break relationship, when we try to live on our own, what we discover is it doesn't work. The devil tells us it'll work. The devil tells us that we can be free. The devil tells us that we won't suffer if we just make ourselves happy, if we just do our own thing. But the world around us tells us a very different story. It tells us that we need to live in relationship with each other and with God. And we are to see how expansive and comprehensive that relationship with God truly is. The work of God is comprehensive. It is our very identity and beginning. It is our very comfort and our security. It is our very future and our very eternity. Notice that in the religions of our world, among the gods of the nations, especially amongst polytheistic religions, you have gods that are only involved in one aspect of life. If you've ever read Augustine's City of God, you'll be impressed by this. One God in Augustine's day, one of the Roman pantheon, he was in charge of baking and of kitchens, and another God was in charge of the garbage and of of disposal. One was in charge of birth, one was in charge of death, one was in charge of this and that and the next thing. And you never knew quite which God to plead to, which God you had to make a sacrifice to. You never really understood which God was the right God to get what you needed or wanted. Not so our God who creates, redeems, and ultimately restores us to full fellowship with Him. Our God is the God who governs all of life, who's been directing all of history, who has accomplished the perfect plan of His salvation, who is working in us so that we might inherit eternal life. This is the God who shapes and affects and imprints His glory upon all aspects of life and history and truth. This again is a distinguishing aspect of our faith. A reminder that God remains our priority in all of life. There is no place, nowhere in this world that you can escape God in any way. Even as it is for us a reminder of the great grace of God. That is a distinguishing mark of the Christian religion as well. It is the only religion you can find grace 
forgiveness. It is the deliverance of God, of, of rather of His people by God that gives us so much hope and comfort and peace. And it reminds us of the great intimacy of our God in our lives. Of how precious and personal is the saving work of our triune God. Indeed, life, religion, our own selves, our history, our world, our future, our present, none of these things can truly be understood, you see, until you understand the triune God. That's what this article of Lord's Day 8 reveals to us. That to understand life, to understand who you are, and to understand what you need and why you need it, why you long for these things and where you can gain them, how you can experience fulfillment and purpose, all of those things require understanding something of the triune God. Which is, of course, a very challenging thing as the question and answer, or the second question and answer of Lord's Day 8 reminds us. For it asks, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? To which the answer comes, because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. This teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity does defy all of humanity's ever attempts, and there have been more than a few, to make it neat and tidy, easily contained within a nice, rational system. Indeed, much ink in the history of the church has been spilled trying to come to greater clarity on the teaching of the Trinity. Indeed, very early on in the history of the church, this was the point of debate, or this was the point of debate. That's why our confessions come from the various early days, or creeds rather, come from the various early days of the church's history, the apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian. These are born out of great controversies because in the early church there were great controversies. There were great disagreements and arguments that, that, that needed to be answered and resolved in a way that was consistent with the revelation of God's Word, in a way that was clear and compelling and orthodox. And that was no easy thing to do. Invariably, someone would stand up and would start overemphasizing the threeness of God, and, and they would have to be dealt with, and then somebody else would stand up and overemphasize the oneness of God, and they would have to be dealt with. Or they would stand up and they would deny the sonship of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus. They, there was all of these controversies as the early church began to grow and mature and develop all of which needed to be addressed by the church. And understandably so. We need clarity on this teaching. We need to understand our God as He is. We need to know the God who has made us and with whom we live in fellowship. That's not an easy thing to do. On the one hand, we can grasp God as one. We can grasp the essence of our God, His divinity, His oneness. And we can make sense of that in our heads quite easily. And we can also make sense of the threeness of God, that there is three persons. That makes sense to us too. We know what a person is and, and we know what distinguishes one person from the next. And, and so we can understand God. We can understand Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
But to hold those two truths in harmony, that's the very challenging thing. That's why sometimes preachers try to grasp at analogies, created analogies, that is, analogies taken from creation, in order to try and find an analog for this triune God. They talk about water being ice, liquid, and a gas. They talk about three-leafed clovers. They talk about so many things within creation. Person, our own spirit, soul, and body. We talk about um, being loved and lover and the love. We, there are all of these uh, remarkable analogies that people try to come up with to explain and to try and find a way to make sense of the triune God. Because that's so often what we need. We need God to make sense to us. We need Him to be understandable. We need Him to be somebody that we can look over and go, oh, okay, I get get how this works. I get how this works for me and how I can relate to this person, this God. This is what I know He'll do. This is what I know He won't do. You, you don't want a God who you can't understand. What a terrifying thing to be in a relationship with a sovereign, almighty being who is not dependent upon you, who does not need to do what you think or expect, who is able to do what He wills because He is God. That's a terrifying position to be in. That's why we struggle so very much. That's why our world struggles so very much with the call to faith. Because it's a call to absolute surrender. It's a call to, to come under the, the, the God who is beyond our ability to manipulate, to control, to understand. We don't like to be in that place. We don't like to be in a place where we can't understand where we are not sovereign, where our minds are not over this God. Defend this God to me, people say. Prove to me that He exists, people say. Because they want to be able to sit as judge, jury, and executioner over God. And sometimes the church tries. Sometimes the church takes the bait. Sometimes the church attempts to make sense of it. But the catechism's answer is far more accurate and compelling and good. Why do you speak of this one divine being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? The answer comes quite simply this. Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. We've read two of those passages already. In Genesis 1, let us. In John 1, the voice of the Father is heard even as the Spirit descends upon Jesus at His baptism, the very Son of God, the One who was before me, says John the Baptist. Before me. That makes no sense if Jesus is just a man. It only makes sense truly when you understand that He's the Son of God. It's in passages like Exodus 3 where God spoke out of the burning bush and the Lord Yahweh says, 
You go, wait a minute, is it God or is it Yahweh? Which one is it? And Moses says, yes, it is God, it is Yahweh. It is Peter's words to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. You've not lied to God, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. We go, wait, wait, what? It's one or the other, Peter. It can't be both. And Peter says, no, it is. It's both God and the Holy Spirit. It's in Paul's uh, uh, blessing upon the church, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, as we work our way through all of Scripture and as we come, even in the context of the Old Testament, Psalms like Psalm 104, Psalm 110, that Jesus rather famously uses to describe His priority. When we read through the Old Testament, but especially when we come into the New Testament and we see the glorious light of Jesus Christ revealing to us who God is. Remember what he says to Thomas, if you've seen God or to his disciples, then you've seen me. Or if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. He reveals to us more clearly the person of the Godhead. And so we see throughout the pages of Scripture that this truth while it may be challenging to us, while we may not be able to make sense of it entirely, while it may not fit our expectation and ability, is nonetheless the way God has revealed Himself to us. This is how God makes Himself known. He is one God, one eternal, true God, but three distinct persons. Now again, there's a lot that can be said about this. We can wax eloquent on the teaching of Scripture when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity. And we can note, even in the Catechism, there's careful words used. The word persons in this answer is not insignificant. It's not a minor word. It's a very vital word that helps describe the doctrine of the Trinity for us. And notice that it's not one God, one person God. It is one true eternal God, but three persons that the language of the Athanasian Creed also comes to mind here. How it's very careful in its describing God as, as this, but not that. We don't believe that. No, we believe this. There is a lot that can be said about the doctrine of the Trinity. But really what the doctrine of the Trinity does for us is it reminds us that our God is holy, holy, holy. And that we are but creatures within the palm of His hand. That He defies our finite and puny minds. That He is beyond our ability to comprehend. That He is greater than anything we can ever imagine. Which is to say that the doctrine of the Trinity from its very first puts us in our place and humbles us to the lowest which is not a place we like to be, which is not a thing we want to accept. We have a problem with that, which is why we have a problem with the Trinity. You see, with the doctrine of the Trinity, we are both confronted with the wonder and majesty of who our God is, even as we're confronted with our need to humble ourselves before Him and say, Lord, I take You as You are. He who defies our ability to reduce Him to a manageable deity, one that can fit nicely inside of Your pocket to be drawn out at need. Now this truth can frustrate us at times, even terrify us. Life itself demonstrates that things don't always go in a straight line in a neat and orderly way. 
with no bumps along the way. And realizing we're subject to a deity that does not depend on us, but that we depend on for our very breath, can be frightening and overwhelming. So we can choose instead. We can reject this God. Instead, seek a more manageable God. The gods of our world. The gods of wealth and of happiness. The gods of pleasure and of autonomy. They're so much more approachable. They're so much more dependable. They're so much more controllable. But they are not real. They are just the figments of man's imagination. The fact that they fit within your head and satisfy your expectations demonstrates that. Now, the call of Lord's Day 8 is to first humble ourselves before the Lord and say to God, I accept you as you reveal yourself to be. I depend upon you, my Creator and Redeemer, my Sanctifier. I cannot exist without you. I cannot be redeemed apart from you. I cannot live except you give me life. That's a faith that doesn't close our eyes. That's not a faith that says it makes no sense and I'll pretend it's true. It is rather a faith that takes God at His Word and accepts His revelation to us and says, you are glorious. Indeed, the doctrine of the Trinity is the first truth that ought to bring us to worship God. The doctrine of the Trinity demands that we worship Him, demands that we offer our lives to Him in praise, demands that we acknowledge Him as our great and glorious God. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is a big, big teaching, a big matter for the church. We so often, if we're asked, what you believe might answer by saying something like, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that my sins are forgiven. I believe that I have eternal life. And those are all good answers, of course. They aren't at all wrong. But the big truth is, I believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. I believe this triune God watches over me. I believe this triune God loves me. I believe this triune God guides me. Indeed, as the Athanasian Creed reminds us, after having spoken of the three persons of the Trinity, after having spoken especially of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in His death and resurrection, His ascension, and His promised return, reminds us that this is the Catholic faith, that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. Let's ask the Lord for grace in that. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity, a teaching that is beyond, in so many respects, our ability to understand. Oh, there's many good things we can say, Lord, and we can be very careful in our choice of words, and we can make significant and serious distinctions. And yet, Heavenly God and Father, at the end, we must bow in worship and cry out with those cherubim, those angels who cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we pray, Heavenly God and Father, that you would help us to do that and that you would help us to worship you for who you are, not for who you or who we want you to be. Help us to lay down, Lord, our arrogance and pride and help us instead uh, to humbly bow in adoration of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then our song of response is number 208. All glory be to Thee, Most High, to Thee all adoration. And grace and truth Thou drawest nigh to 